Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. In this episode of Everything Compliance, we have the full gang of Karen Woody, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Armstrong, Jay Rosen, and Tom Fox. Jonathan Armstrong looks at the conviction of Joe Sullivan. Jonathan Marks asks, should the PCAOB be folded into the SEC? Matt Kelly looks at the implosion of, of Twitter. Karen Woody considers, looks at challenges to the SEC in-house court system. And Jay Rosen looks at the conviction of the Santa Clara County Sheriff. All this... Shoutouts and rants, and more on this episode of Everything Compliance. Before we get to today's episode, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the award-winning Everything Compliance, and I'm thrilled that we have the entire group today. That's Jonathan Armstrong, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Marks, Professor Karen Woody, and Jay Rosen. So, lady and gentlemen, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Good Tom. Thanks, Tom. I don't, I'm not sure any, more, any episode is more insane than any other episode, but I'm, this one's going to be insane because we've had some insane comings and goings. So, we're going to start with our look across the pond from Jonathan Armstrong, although Mr. Armstrong wants to look at an issue that occurred in America. So, Jonathan Armstrong, over to you. Yeah, thanks very much. I'm going to divert from one of my usual topics, but return to one of my established ones by looking at cybersecurity and the conviction of Joe Sullivan. And this is an area where I really would appreciate an input from some of you as well, particularly since Mm -hmm. it's been a while. For recap, for those who don't know it, Joe Sullivan was a lawyer. He was also an information security specialist, and he was the former CISO at Uber. And this all, in part, concerns the regime change at Uber with the bad CEO going and a new CEO and a cleanup campaign. But it also concerns a ransomware attack, which was disguised as a bounty bug payment. Now, I guess the first thing to say is that many of the people that I know in the information security community would count Joe Sullivan as a friend. He's definitely who was respected in some sectors of the industry. He'd previously worked at Facebook, at eBay, and at the U.S. Department of Justice, where he worked, I understand, with Robert Mueller at the DOJ. He moved to Uber. He fell out with the new CEO in part over the incident we're going to talk about in a minute, but he still got a job for Cloudflare after that and was still gainfully employed 
in the CISO community. And he was convicted last month on one count of obstruction of justice and one count of misprision of a felony. And I suspect that's an offence that we gave you probably in exchange for the Big Mac. And and obviously, it's not a term that comes to most people's everyday talk, but it's effectively covering up something that you shouldn't have covered up. He's awaiting sentence. The sentence is planned, I think, for the spring, although he has now lodged an appeal. There are people on the call who will know better than me how that will affect timing. And this was really about the cover-up of a data breach in 2016 at Uber that affected 57 million Uber drivers and riders. And effectively what had happened is there was a knock on the door or a virtual knock on the door from Uber, from some people based in Canada. They effectively tried to hold Uber to ransom with this data. Uber had a bug bounty budget so a budget that was allowed to pay for relatively trivial errors in its code. And they used that bug bounty budget to pay the hackers and to ask them to sign an NDA to cover all of this up. And at the time, Uber was uh, under investigation for another security breach. Note, not the one that they're currently investigating. You may think that Casiv has holes, so does Uber's security policy, and the US authorities said, not a good thing that you didn't tell us about this and you weren't open with us. And the new CEO said the same, sacked Sullivan, and as I've said, federal proceedings followed. Some people say that the idea really was to turn the heat upon Sullivan so that he would expose Uber's former CEO, who was the guy that the prosecutors really wanted to get hold of. But I have to stress that's rumor rather than originated in any fact. So is this a one-off or is it a trend is the next question. In my view, it seems that it isn't a one-off. I think it's interesting that the DOJ have said that there could be more cases. They've said, quote, we will not tolerate concealment of important information from the public by corporate executives more interested in protecting their reputation and that of their employees than in protecting users. Where such conduct violates the federal law, it will be prosecuted. And I think it's indicative of the fact uh, or, or indicative of the FTC's approach, perhaps, is the fact that they did a settlement with an outfit called Drizzly and Uber subsidiary uh, more recently by the FTC with the CEO in that case of Drizzly, where it's, to my mind, a a really odd settlement in that the settlement attaches not only to Drizzly, but also to the CEO personally. And as I understand it, if the CEO moves to any other corporation, then that settlement where he effectively has to personally supervise data practices at the corporation moves with him as well, which seems to me, uh, by my ears, to be somewhat strange. So first of all, and I know you're all going to have questions and I'm scrabbling through to get to them. Question number one, could this also apply to compliance officers? In my view, probably. 
I don't think it mattered necessarily that it, he was the CISO or the CSO. I think what perhaps had some role to play was the fact that he was a lawyer. And I think there was some you should have known better elements to this. But I think that it applies to any corporate officer who the feds decide has covered up stuff that they shouldn't. And I think that could be a compliance officer. And I don't think it necessarily matters whether they're the originator of the scheme to cover up. I think if you're in the room and you say nothing, particularly when you know that it's relevant to an investigation, then you're in jeopardy. So I think there's potential issues for compliance officers going forward. And we had debates previously about whether noisy withdrawal was required by law. And I think it puts all of that stuff back on the table. So next question, could this occur in the EU as well? Obviously, yes, it could. Many EU corporations are US listed or have connections with the US, which would bring jurisdiction for the US authorities. But in any event, there are provisions under GDPR, for example, that would possibly come into play. Things like transparency under Article 5. Bear in mind the fact that transparency is the area of GDPR where the highest fines have come. Recent statistics say 66 percent of GDPR fines include the GDPR principles, 18 percent uh, include data security. So a high chance of getting fined for the corporation there. As a side note, Uber has been fined by authorities in the UK, the Netherlands and Italy for this particular breach, a 4.2 million euro fine in Italy for this breach, including for lack of transparency and not being clear with people the effects of the breach. So transparency is number one issue, I think, under GDPR. There's also obligations, obviously, to tell the PA of a data breach under GDPR Article 33. You have to do that usually in 72 hours. Unavailability of data in a ransomware attack is also a breach. The data doesn't have to go to the baddies. But you have an obligation to tell data subjects, which Uber did have here under Article 34. They've been fined, as I say, by EU DPAs for not doing that. There's a duty to cooperate with regulators under Article 31. And then finally, under Article 34, there's a power of DPAs to do audits and you have to then effectively cooperate with them. And in some circumstances, conduct like this can be criminalised in the UK as well. So in the UK, under Section 148 of the Data Protection Act, you create a criminal offence if you conceal or destroy information that could be relevant to an investigation. And then two things, I guess, finally, is class actions. Are class actions likely? I think, as Tom might say, Hell yes. I think there are obviously scope for litigation in the US and why not? Because that's the litigation capital of the world. But also in the Netherlands as well, where there's a class action type construct, slightly different to US, which is already being used against Uber. There's a potential UK class action compensation claimed of about £1,500 per person, which given the numbers of drivers and riders in the UK could be really significant. And the cover-up will clearly be a key theme in that litigation. One last chance, one, one last topic to raise before I let the lion start. Insurance. 
Insurers are obviously more likely to be focused on data breaches, in part because their payouts have gone up and in part because they're focused on that sort of stuff because of nation state attacks, because of changes to the Lloyds policy, because of some recently settled litigation over attribution, et cetera, et cetera. So it's harder than ever to get cyber insurance, particularly hard, I think, if you haven't been open with your insurers about your prior track record. And obviously, it's difficult to get insurance against criminal acts for CISOs and executives as well. So I think the bottom line from my perspective is that I think it's a significant case. I know some people say it turns on its particular facts and anyone who covers stuff up deserves what they get. But I think there's more to this case than that. I think it will send shockwaves through boards. I think that compliance officers are going to need to be really careful. They're going to need to do proper due diligence when they go into an organization to check they're not inheriting problems. They're going to have to negotiate hard on their contracts when they go in. So things like the right to independent legal counsel, privilege obviously makes that complicated. Things like looking at the DNO insurance policy and seeing if you're covered in that. And then I think finally, people are also going to have to take a hard look at remuneration. My suspicion is that one of the factors here was the fact that executives like Sullivan frequently receive a relatively low base, but high upside depending on share price. So I think some people on juries, some prosecutors think sometimes you've got too much skin in the game. There's too much incentive for you personally to cover stuff up, to increase share price or maintain share price so that your options vest or so that you can cash out stock. And so I think anybody going into an organization has to look really carefully at their, at their comp package. So if you've got too much skin in the game and bad things are going on, then I think you're personally more liable as a result. So I know I've probably ran over time, but I think there's just an awful lot to cover. And I think it's one of these things that we do best as a group to try and throw around some of the issues that are involved. Matt, do you have some questions and or comments for Mr. Armstrong? Oh, where to begin with this issue? <laughs> First, while the idea is in my head, for those people who really want a good look at this case, there is another podcast out there, Loft. They, several weeks ago, had an interview with a lawyer who wrote a paper about this. His name is Kellen Dwyer. Both the paper, I don't remember Mr. Dwyer's law firm, I wish I did, and the Lawfare episode are well worth listening to because I think this is the potential to be a really big deal, especially for compliance officers. The idea of this misprison offense. Now, I had to admit, I had not heard of misprison until I heard that blog that lawfare podcast a couple of weeks ago and i had to look it up and jonathan i don't know what the legal history is in the uk but apparently it was adopted in the united states in the 1700s i think during the washington administration so a bit of a stretch that something from the 18th century would be used to prosecute somebody in a data protection or data breach case but when you, oh, somebody said Alston Bird, there, that was where Kellen Dwyer is working. Go dig up his paper that he wrote about this case. Let me just start with a lot of people saying 
wondering, is this legit or not, this idea of misprison? I think the moral principle here is pretty clear. If you shrink it down to the example of a family, which I find is always a great way to think about ethics and compliance issues, you, the parent, come home, you find the family car is wrecked. You know that probably your 17-year-old is the one who did it because they had the driver's license and they can't drive. But then you find out the 14-year-old knew about this, but didn't tell you about it. What would you do to the 14-year-old? You you would strangle them, just like you're going to strangle the 17-year-old for wrecking the car. If you find out your other child knew what your child was doing and they didn't tell you about it, you'd be furious at your other kid. That's the moral principle here, I think, at work with Miss Prison. So I'm not opposed to this, but it raises some really difficult questions. Could the government bring similar cases around an FCPA enforcement action that the company wasn't disclosing? And you, the compliance officer, you find out about it and you're going to have to do something about this because it's one of those things that you can't pretend you don't know. And therefore, you'd have to think through, do I have a duty to disclose this? Because if I don't, the feds could come after me. But Jonathan, my other big question that is in my mind is uh, you had mentioned this could affect your employment contract, your right to outside counsel, your pay structure. This assumes that you, the compliance officer, have an employment contract. I don't know how many of them actually do. Mm. I don't know that you could get DNO insurance. You could get the right to outside counsel. I I, I can't imagine you would. I think a lot of companies would laugh you out of the office. But my other point mm. would be, okay, let's even say the compliance officer gets away with that in the contract. What about their deputies who might also find something? And if you're a senior director or a senior manager of ethics and compliance, and you find out about this, that people are sitting on knowledge of a felony and they're not confessing it, you can't unknow that and you're going to have to respond to it. And I think that this opens a big can of worms. I'm not opposed to the can of worms being open, but we should remember that cans of worms are stinky and messy for a reason. And I don't know what a lot of people are going to have to do with this, but this is a mess. Mr. Marks. Wow. Aging Mr. Marks. Uh, Jeremy? Yeah. Oh, okay. Great. Wonderful. So kind of look at this is if you have a C in front of your name and you're an officer of a company, duck. And I hate to say this, but when Sarbanes-Oxley came out in 2002 and started to get implemented in 2004, a lot of the water cooler conversation in the executive floors were, how do we cover our what's? And from my perspective, since I deal with this on a regular and ongoing basis, especially dealing with cyber incidents and CISOs and the like, I could tell you this, there are sometimes the CISO is supposed to be guiding the board and general counsel on various, you know, that's, that, that's very true. But if there are gaps and weaknesses in the overall security protocols of the organization, and the reason that there are gaps or weaknesses is because of budgetary constraints or people don't want the burden placed on them in order to create a secure environment, why is that the CISO's fault? And that's where I think there needs to be some CYA that's actually done. I'm actually interested. I was not only interested in this case for various and sundry reasons, but I'm also interested in what's going to happen with the Twitter whistleblower case as well. So I've been following them pretty closely. I actually listened to that podcast, Matt, from, from Lawfare Blog with Andrew Dwyer. And the link is up there, If Tom, if you want to share it later, but that's fine. But six years ago, a lot of this stuff with chief compliance officers and CISOs and all kinds of crazy stuff, this didn't exist. 
I think there you can hear the drum beat getting louder. You can hear the p- patience is getting very thin. The regulators are less tolerant these days. And to your every everybody's points are great. Make sure that you have some way to protect yourself. I go back to that scene in Clear and Present Danger. You don't have one of these, do you, Jack? That's kind of a get out of jail free card. But if you don't have something like that, you need to start thinking about that. Even if you don't have anything now, it might be something that you may want to start negotiating with. It is the CISO's job to sort of hide everybody else. But sometimes they're at the whim of others with regards to decisions that are being made from the overall operational aspect of the company. And that puts the CISO in a very precarious spot. And that's why I'm interested to see in this challenging threat and regulatory environment, really what's going to happen. What's the sentence going to eventually look like? And to your point, incentive comp, when you when we talk about the enemies of internal control, certainly compensation plans are certainly one of them. But if you have a base of $100,000 and you make a million dollars a year, 900000 of that relates to the bottom line of the company. And for a fact that you can control some of that based on your actions or inactions, you better believe that comes into play. That There's a whole psychological theory with regards to moral blind spots in the shadow. And I think sometimes the shadow gets the best of all of us, or at least some of us, when you throw that kind of money in front of folks. I'm intrigued by all of this. I think everybody made great points, but I'm also watching this Twitter thing very carefully to see what happens there, because it'd be interesting to see how these two align or don't align and what's going to be done or not done in both of these cases. Before we get to Twitter, we have actually a question came in from our audience, and it may be directed towards you, Matt, but it may also be to Mr. Armstrong, and it comes from our colleague Mike Ward, who asked or states, to continue the analogy of the teenage driver, should the parent report the crime to the police? Should they be prosecuted if they do not report their child? Well, Welcome I'll to the slippery that. slope. Uh, it, it is a slippery slope, but uh, so when I was originally giving that analogy, I thought more you hit a tree or you hit the stone fence in front of your house. That's not a crime, so it wouldn't have to be reported. But if you found out that one of the other kids knew that your child had done something and then didn't tell you, and you had to find it out by doing a lengthy investigation of your own, of course, you're going to be mad at the child who knew and kept quiet. Now to Mike Ward's question about what if they had committed a crime? Yeah. Because if the 17, well, what if the 17 year old ran down four people and killed two of them and the police are out looking for somebody for vehicular manslaughter and you find out that it's my son, I'm not going to tell the cops. I think the cops would be very upset about that. And so would the district attorney if they later find out that you knew your child had committed a felony and you were sitting on it. That take that as the most extreme example because that's the easiest way to answer it. If they were, if they killed people, as much as I love my son, yes, I would tell the police because far better to cooperate with them and try and figure out a resolution than the police come on their own because eventually they are going to find out who was behind the wheel. And then we get maybe back up the slippery slope. What if they just ran into somebody's house and there's some damage? What if they wrecked a stop sign? What if they didn't kill anybody? I appreciate the slippery slope dimension, but at the bottom of the slippery slope, I actually think it becomes clearer that, yes, of course, you're going to have to tell the police. You're going to cover that up. 
good luck. There's a slight sniff of Eastern Europe about some of this, isn't there? The former Soviet states. So whenever you're looking at data breaches in Europe, the, the, some of the former Soviet states have this obligation to shop potential felons, so people who commit crimes, so there can be a positive obligation to report a crime on so that the authorities can investigate. And I know the US, as we all trying to side with Ukraine at the moment, but you don't necessarily have to adopt their laws. Matt, let me ask you a question. What if your son said he wanted to go to the police and you said, no, you know what? We're not going to do that. We're going to sit tight. That would be extremely stupid. It's, I, I don't well, want to I, dance I, around on the head. It's kind of facts. But if your kid said, dad, I killed two people with the car, I'm going to go turn myself in. And you, the parent, you're going to say, no, you're not. Like, Jesus, then I would sit down with the parent and seriously question their sanity. And that's covering up a felony. You can't unknow that. I think it actually, it gets harder when the damage is easier. What if they plowed into a plasclate window of the store around the corner from you? You Who knows? I'm sure there are probably plenty of people who hope that they could keep quiet and get away with it. A, that is morally wrong. B, it might not work. But if it's a really egregious thing, then it comes quite clear. Yes, you're going to have to go to the police because if they find out later and they come back to you, that's going to be infinitely worse. So let me ask you a question. We all agree that internal controls provide reasonable assurance and not absolute assurance. That's been embedded in everybody's head for a long time, right? We can all also agree that it's impossible to stop every puck that's shot on the goalie. It just is. There's no goalie that ever goes an entire season and there's not one biscuit put in the basket. It just doesn't happen. It's the same thing with cyber. No matter your the best security, you know, the best security system, someone somewhere, if there's an insider threat or an outsider threat actor, they could get in. So everybody knowing that and understanding that, to your Matt, to your point, why wouldn't you at least say, hey, look, we had a threat. We had a breach. This is not, this should not come as a shock to anybody today. That's my point behind this whole thing, too, is that these things happen. It's part of it's part of operating and using the internet and all these other all these other technologies. It's going to happen. Just you know, I don't know what else to say. I just look at these things and I go, are we spending way too much time, effort, and energy on the prosecution of this individual rather than really getting to the real root cause of all this? And that is, you're never going to create a security system that's going to stop everything coming at you. It's impossible. If that's the case, then why shouldn't there be a mechanism to report without being punished? Let's move on to Matt Kelly. And for those who thought we could go an entire episode without talking about Elon Musk, (laughs) sorry. Because as insane as this summer and September and October were, it's even more insane. Matt, what do you have for us? Let's start with, as of right now, we're halfway through the one-hour episode. Twitter has not yet gone bankrupt, but we still got 30 minutes left. Who knows? Twitter is in dire straits, I think. And I don't necessarily just want to take the easy pot shots about how Elon clearly has no idea what he's doing, which I don't think he does, and that Twitter probably will go bankrupt. But I think what is most alarming as of today, and again, who knows, maybe something more alarming will come up before the show's over, is that all of Twitter's compliance and gatekeeper executives who were involved in data protection, they all seem to have resigned, I think, either yesterday or the day before, but they're all gone. That would include the chief compliance officer, a woman named Marianne Fogarty the head of information security, the head of trust, which is not the same as the compliance officer at Twitter because Twitter had such high 
trust issues and the need for assurance there against disinformation and whatnot. So a suite of them quit on Wednesday and Thursday. Big question that people would ask is why? There's a lot of speculation, and I think there's a lot to this, that Elon swept in, fired half the staff, and then started talking about, we're going to do this with the new verification program that isn't really, it's just going to be selling blue checks for $8 a pop. We're going to be doing this with a little gray check, not a blue check, that will denounce, announce a official account, like the official account of the Federal Reserve. Then he canceled that three hours after it went live. He is rolling out one bright idea after another, which turns out not to be bright. And none of it, I suspect, is getting the proper due diligence in cybersecurity review and information protection review. And how could you do that within the space of a few hours or a few days when half the staff has already been laid off, when he's talking about gutting the spend on IT infrastructure? But if you are gutting all of this ability to provide assurance, Twitter has to provide assurance. Twitter has a Federal Trade Commission decree. We, we should remember the history here. So in 2011, that was Twitter's first big flop with the Federal Trade Commission. They had an enforcement action because of poor data privacy back in 2011. That was going to extend to 2031. By 2020, Twitter had a new head of security, Peter Zatko, Mudge, and he was the one in 2020 who said, we don't have anything that is in compliance with that 2011 decree. We are a total mess. And then now that Peter Zatko, Mudge, he became the Twitter whistleblower. He got fired, he claims. And so he was alleging that they were in violation of their Federal Trade Commission consent decree. And the FTC had signed then a second decree, finding them in violation of the first decree. And then they had to pay $150 million. And now I suspect what's happening is that they are in violation of the second decree that came about because they're in violation of the first decree. How much longer are we going to do this? I'm not sure. But there's no ability right now at Twitter to give the sort of assurance over these products that Elon is rolling out. And so these people, rather than certify something they can't, they're all quitting. That's really, I think, what is happening here. It is a mess. But this is where I want to get away from Twitter because Twitter is just going to be a punching bag. It raises a larger question that other companies need to think about is that the regulators for information protection, the SEC to a certain extent, the Federal Trade Commission to a great extent, and this sleeper agency that I think a lot of companies don't have on their radar screen is the New York Department of Financial Services. If you are in financial services, they also are increasing their demands for solid cybersecurity protection. ESOs who are going to certify the effectiveness of the program, outside audits that you might need to get of your cybersecurity controls. All of this is coming down the road. A lot of companies are not doing very well at it right now. And you can see some of the enforcement patterns that are emerging, the FTC in particular. Jonathan Armstrong, I love that you mentioned Drizzly because that was a, one that I had written about, but Drizzly and Chegg, which is an online student services portal. Karen, I see you nodding. I hear that professors hate Chegg. They say it's online cheating. I'm not sure if that's true. 
Don't answer that question. But others have told me this. But both of them had terrible cybersecurity practices. They both got nailed by the FTC, which is imposing some pretty onerous requirements around having a CISO, certifying the program. If the FTC isn't doing it, if you're a bank, New York is going to make you do it. And Twitter is this glaring example now of how not to do it because they're laying people off left and right. And now suddenly compliance officers might have to certify this. And at least at Twitter, they're all literally flying the coop. But even if it's not Twitter, you're going to have massive layoffs at, say, we saw it at Facebook. I would not be surprised if we see it at Amazon. We saw it at Stripe, the online payments company. All of them have huge amounts of consumer data. They have huge needs for assurance around information protection. They're going through some really difficult times just when regulators are stepping up what you have to do to assure good information protection. This is the maelstrom that we are all going to be in. Twitter is just a big, colorful example, but there's a lot of smaller examples right there, and they're all going to wind up getting put on their back heels. Mr. Armstrong, question or comment for Matt? Just a quick comment to say, you, we see the same here, I think. I think, and just that added bit that US tech businesses are under the GDPR spotlight like never before. We'll hit the 2 billion euros worth of fines in the next week or so. It'll almost certainly be a US big tech corporation that tips us over that that 2 billion euros level. And you're right, regulators are completely unsympathetic to the fact that you're shedding staff, that you're failing to recruit the right staff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you cut the key people who know what your security stance is, you face trouble. And that's a false economy if you get a, if you get a fine of 500 million euros for having canned the guy who knew stuff. You know, I would just want to add one more thing about Elon and Twitter. So if they are found to be in deliberate violation of the second decree that the FTC handed down, the potential fines Twitter would face would be enormous, hundreds of millions of dollars at least, if not more. But my bigger question is, at what point would this nonsense that Elon is doing with the Federal Trade Commission kick over to become a Justice Department criminal probe? If you read through the whistleblower complaint, which did precede Elon showing up, but that complaint alleges a lot of stuff that reads like a Justice Department criminal investigation is necessary to me. And then you can play this out because what if there is a criminal investigation against Twitter, against Elon? If Elon finds himself target of a criminal probe, he's a director and officer at a publicly traded company, one of the most valuable in the world, even today at Tesla. If I were the Tesla shareholders, I would be furious that he is turning this into a sideshow when he has a day job running one of the most important companies in the world. You could go on all day long, but I just, you have to question, what is it like inside Elon Musk's brain? And I just, I'm not sure if I want to know or not. So I have a question that may trend over to Karen a little bit, but could the FTC or SEC take some type of emergency action or how quickly can they step in, go to court, get an injunction to require an affirmative act such as certification? Is there any legal relief, Karen, that you can think of or Matt, that you've seen uh, the FTC engage in, which might answer some of the questions you posed around certification? Matt, what do you think? I'll go, I'm going to piggyback on what you say. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, I feel free because I'm going to say I don't know. I have no idea <laughs> how. And I think a lot of people could piggyback on that comment. I guess my I, what is it we're enjoining him from or we're forcing him to certify? I guess that, I have a question about the question, maybe, Tom. What is it we would demand that he would be enjoined from? If there's a consent agreement in place, can the regulatory agency or regulator go in and get an injunction to require compliance with the consent degree by X day? Yeah, I think so. That seems like an absolutely valid claim, which is, again, before all the damage gets done. And that's the point of an injunction. So yeah, I don't see why the SEC couldn't try to do that or the FTC, actually. The, the Federal Trade Commission, yeah. And one other point we might as well call out here, we, we seldom talk about it on this podcast, but the national security implications, let us not forget that if Twitter does actually go bankrupt, one of the biggest owners of whatever is left of it is going to be a Saudi Arabian investment fund. Joe Biden is not wrong to say that might be problematic. The Saudis do not share our values. They do not share our interests. They are not our friends. And do you really want them to be one of the big power brokers in one of the most important media businesses around? Even though most people aren't on Twitter because most people are smarter than me. I'm on it far more than I should be. Let's move on to Karen Woody. We've had a number of court challenges to the Securities and Exchange Commission and the FTC. I wanted to maybe get your thoughts on perhaps not how the current Supreme Court and its makeup might view these, but are these, in your mind, legitimate questions that should be raised in a court of law and should be answered by a court of law, or is this just more magma hat raising? Yeah, thanks, Tom. It's great to be back here. So the backdrop to this are the court cases that were heard by the court this Monday. It was a pair of cases that challenged the constitutionality of the procedure around the FTC and the SEC and their use of their in-house administrative courts. The issue for these two cases really was about timing. At base, the question is, do these litigants have to wind their way through the administrative courts before they're able to go seek relief from an Article Three court, so a federal district court. And this conservative makeup of the Supreme Court seems to be very sympathetic to the litigants of thinking this is silly for them to have to spend potentially years finding their way through the layers of administrative procedure before seeking relief in the federal court. The litigants in these two cases this week based their claim on a statute that comes out of 28 U.S. 1331, which is essentially Federal district courts have original jurisdiction over all civil actions arising under the Constitution, and their claims are constitutional, which is, I want to have my claim heard in front of an Article Three court. These are legitimate challenges and are not the first. The ones we heard this week are not the first. This is one in the many slew over the past year and even before then of what has been winding its way toward what I think it will be the ultimate whittling down of administrative jurisdiction and administrative authority in these situations. Apologies in advance that this might be a primer on CIPRO, CONLON, admin all in five minutes, but the background, I'm going to think about just this in terms of the SEC. Even though this week's case is the pair was an FTC challenge and an SEC challenge, it might be easier to see this in the lens of the SEC, and that's definitely my background. So... The background here is if we wind all the way back to Dodd-Frank, Dodd-Frank has what was seen as a little known provision at the time, section 929, broadly 
granted more authority to the SEC to bring all securities fraud cases in their in-house court, so in front of their own administrative law judges. Everyone on this panel will recall that day when that came through because the defense bar's hair was lit on fire about all the cases that the SEC was now going to bring on their own home turf. I think at the SEC Speaks conference that year, they said they were going to bring every FCPA matter there. They were just going to come hard. And, and the reason is because there are advantages to the agency when you go through that process, things like timing, discovery rules, and just the impartiality of the, of the forum itself. So just a little bit of background here is that the SEC, if you have an enforcement action brought against you, that enforcement action was instituted and authorized by the commission. So the five-person bipartisan body authorizes the enforcement action. The enforcement division brings the action against you. And if they bring that in their in-house court, you have that case heard in front of an administrative law judge who is an employee of the agency. How that person is appointed, we'll talk about in one second in a minute, but then if you lose at the ALJ, you appeal to the commission itself. So you appeal to the five-person body that authorized the case from the get-go. And only then, if you appeal from that decision, are you have your case heard at the D.C. Circuit. So that's the first time you have a sort of more impartial view, potentially, of the case. And even there, there's obvious deference to the agency. So the scales are very much tipped in favor of the agency throughout the process. So that's just the background. So... The question now, the one that was before the court, and I think tees up this sort of long-standing march toward trying to whittle back that SEC and other agencies' power, because this can be applied to the other agencies. This case this week, SEC versus Cochrane, had to do with an administrative action brought against a CPA, an accountant, for her role in an accounting firm. She is fined and found liable by the ALJ, the SEC. And this is all happening in 2016, 2017, I think, is the ALJ decision. She is going to appeal that. But this is also 2017, when another very famous court case comes out. And that was Lucia versus the SEC. There, the Supreme Court said, hey, by the way, those ALJs have to be appointed by the president or a court of law or a head of a department. And they're not. So they're unconstitutional. Big deal. So the SEC says, hold on, we'll fix this. We'll get all these people back in here and get them appointed properly, and we'll bring all these cases again. And they do exactly that. So this woman, Cochran, files to stop those proceedings and files in federal district court to say, I don't want to get this reheard. I'm not able to have this case in front of the jury. And also, there are other problems, constitutional problems with this ALJ procedure. That district court case she challenges is dismissed because they said, we don't have jurisdiction. You got to wind this all the way through the administrative courts before we can hear it. That was the subject of the case this week. The Fifth Circuit agreed with her and said, you're right. You didn't bring this case anywhere. Supreme Court heard this on review. So that's the thing. And it seems that this particular makeup of the court is very sympathetic to the idea that, sure, that doesn't seem fair. These agencies have way too much power. Agency procedures are bulky and time consuming. And this may very well be a constitutional challenge that's valid. This is all in the shadow of another Fifth Circuit case that happened earlier this year that really called into question the constitutionality of ALJs writ large. Again, this was another SEC case, but applies broadly to the other agencies. That case was Jarxy. 
a hedge fund manager, securities fraud issues. But that person challenged the ALJ decision, which found him liable, and said, I didn't get a jury trial here. And I didn't. I actually think this section 929 of Dodd-Frank is unconstitutional anyway, because it's taking too much away from Congress and giving to the SEC the discretion about which court they bring these matters in. There's a number of issues here. The major takeaway, I think, from what's happening this week, and I say this sort of culmination of a lot of these cases we've seen recently is that this seems to be a steady march by this conservative makeup of the court of, as I say, stripping authority, stripping jurisdiction back away from the administrative state. We've seen this in other cases, West Virginia versus EPA and Chevron issues that have come up. So there's a lot happening here. I think for Those in the compliance world, what this means for you is that it is much more likely that everyone will sidestep administrative courts and go straight to federal courts so that they don't get mired in some of these potential challenges, at least in the short term. So that's my takeaway. And in the quick, like I said, law school primer, you're muted, Tom. Yeah, I have a question. We've had ALJs in this country for almost at least 100 years that I'm aware of, and they've are in a wide variety of agencies. Is this a move to really strip the constitutional authority from all ALJs? Because by definition, administrative law judge is going to be in the home department or agency where the alleged violation is brought. And this was viewed at least when, with regard to what was the National Labor Act in 1936 as a huge innovative development to have it in administrative law judges initially here in LRB brought proceedings, which could always be appealed to a U.S. district court. So is our entire system of ALJs in at risk now? I hope not, but we have seen a lot of significant attacks in these last few cases. And I think it is. I think this is, we've seen with Gorsuch and really taking swing at any agency deference that the courts have to apply. I think there is this, again, idea that the agencies, which of course are housed in the executive branch, all of this maybe I think initially came out of this idea of maybe judicial economy. We can have experts. We don't have to ramp up and do a huge jury trial to lay people. We can have these cases handled by people in this industry, certainly for things that might relate to health and human services or the EPA, that kind of deal. This was a this is almost a fast track to be heard by people who understand these issues and may know, may appreciate that. And I think there's a real challenge to that concept writ large by this court and by, honestly, the previous administration did its best to unwind the administrative state altogether. <laughs> this was, this was, it was a lot. So I, I think this is just one additional challenge to a fundamental structure of our government that, you know, I think this idea of deference to these experts is one that is very much on the bubble right now. Matt, do you have a question or comment for Karen? Just maybe a quick comment. I think that the way that Karen, you described it as these issues are on the bubble right now is exactly apt, but we should all keep in mind just what happened three days ago with the election. And it is very likely now Democrats, A, are going to keep the Senate and probably wind up with 51 seats and B it is like the longer the Republicans don't take the house, the more likely it is that they might not take it at all. This should have been settled and it's not, but 
to a certain extent, I hope, I think most of the Supreme Court knows how to read the room. They have pushed the American public's patience as far as the public will take it. And if the Democrats do wind up holding power, it's very, I think, I hope most of the justices would learn, do not push this anymore. We've had enough of their big tumultuous decisions. And if they do it, then, you know, could very well see that Democrats trying to reverse things in very draconian ways, which actually I would support. This Supreme Court is a total mess. But it's an angle that I wonder about now. If Democrats continue to have a fair bit of power in Washington, how much will the Supreme Court justices realize that we can only get away with so much? I don't know. All right. On to Mr. Marks. What do you have for us today around the issue of whether the PCAOB should be eliminated? Its functions incorporated to the SEC. Your thoughts on the PCAOB or any others going forward? Bad idea. Tell you why. How can you have an organization fold into an organization where they're going after people for potentially bad behavior and then all of a sudden have that same organization doing inspections of those same firms? So to me, I think that's a huge conflict of interest. This is not a new idea either. The White House brought this up in their budget cuts in 2020, and we've heard burbles about this for several years now. I think you're looking at I don't think people are looking at this the right way. I think if there were, there's a lot of politics that's involved here, but I think at the end of the day, what the investors want is they want investor protection. And that really means that the auditors are doing their jobs and that they're independent and doing their jobs. To me, I think we're not addressing the real 800 pound gorilla in the room. And that is, if you look at the strategic plan that the PCAOB laid out that they're trying to enforce right now, the fact that they're, they are taking a more aggressive role. I do think that there was some leeway with these firms for a while with regards to getting up to speed and doing all the things that we need to do from a transparency and an independence perspective. But it's a, auditing's a tough job. I don't know if you've ever been, for those of you who have never been an auditor, it's not an easy job, specifically with these publicly traded companies, because you're dealing with so many issues. And it really is, it really is an arduous process to some degree. But putting the PCAOB in the SEC and then the SEC going after these, these organizations and then potentially their auditors who they might have said have done a great job. I think that's a huge mistake. I just do. If you think fundamentally why the PCAOB was created way back when, again, with a second time I brought up Sarbanes-Oxley today, again, I think there's other things that need to be fixed. And I don't know, I don't know that getting rid of the PCAOB or folding it into the SEC is really a great idea. I'm actually working on a matter right now where another regulator has come in. They've blessed this institution. And now all of a sudden the wheels have fallen off the bus and now they're coming back in and saying, you guys didn't do what you were supposed to do. Yeah, but for all these years, you basically said that we did what we were supposed to do. So now how all of a sudden are you on the other end of all of this? You're talking out both sides of your mouth. And I think that could be a huge problem with the PCAOB folding in with the SEC. Leave it alone. Fix it. Let people that hire qualified people make it a more robust organization if that's the case. The easy answer here is, oh, we're going to save 580 million bucks. If they took the capital gains from all the insider trading from all the congressmen and all the senators and use that to fund the PCAOB, I think we'd be okay. Jonathan, who's the constituency that wants to either do away with the PCAOB outright or fold 
their functions into the SEC or other agencies? I, based on the research that I've done, there's a bunch of them. It's not, I don't think it's any one party. And if you read all the burbles about all of this, I don't, I don't know for sure. I have not looked into this, but I don't know whether Gensler's for or against this or not. I haven't seen his commentary on this. Maybe somebody else knows. But I haven't, I know that there's a lot of strong criticism around the PCAOB. And I know a lot of people have come out and said, hey, this is, this is maybe the, the first I heard of it was in 2020, officially, when the White House came out and said, hey, we need to cut the budget and we could save about $600 million by folding the PCAOB in with the SEC. I don't know how they came up with that number either. As an auditor by nature, I would audit that and make sure that it that was actually right. There, Tom, I have not seen, and again, I challenge the public too to, I'm sure there's some groups out there that would like to see it fold in the SEC, but I'm not familiar with anyone in particular. Zero political appetite for this to happen. That's my yeah. guess. Mr. Rosen, sitting on the West Coast, there was a really interesting corruption conviction that resonated with several other members of this panelist over the past months and years. What can you tell us about the now former sheriff of Santa Clara County? Thanks, Tom. After several days of deliberation, a civil jury found the former Santa Clara County Sheriff Lord guilty of corruption and willful misconduct charges, ending the sheriff's nearly 50-year law enforcement career. A guilty verdict means that Smith is now permanently barred from public office and would have been removed from her post as the sheriff had she had not abruptly retired last week. Smith faced six counts of corruption and willful misconduct stemming from allegations that she sidestepped gift reporting laws and engaged in play schemes. She was accused of not reporting gift tickets to a Sharks hockey game and awarding concealed gun permits to friends and colleagues from Apple who donated to her re-election campaign. The former sheriff abruptly retired Monday morning as the jury deliberated her case. That afternoon, they asked the judge to dismiss charges against his client, claiming that her retirement nullified the biggest penalty she faced, removal from office. The judge denied this motion in court on Wednesday. Under Sheriff Ken Bin, they will fill Smith's shoes with a new elected ship that takes over in January. That's why we have the system in place to ensure accountability at every level. There's so many issues that, that, this, that plague this organization and voters are going to need to elect a sheriff that can lead going forward. The leaders supported the verdict, saying it allowed you to move past the controversies that have nursed office for years. The conclusion offers closure on year speculation and concern about actions undertaken by the former sheriff. Historically, domestic public corruptions have been focused on politicians or those in public offices. Increasingly, federal and state authorities are targeting the businesses and organizations that are engaged in corrupt practices that influence topics. Organizations in today's environment need to be equipped to prevent wrongdoing within their organizations and proactively identify any instances of such wrongdoing. So, so let's take a look at some recent trends in public crisis. These matters have historically been focused on the prosecution of individuals individuals in public office, just like the sheriff within the United States. There's been a shift of enforcement activity to also investigate and bring actions against those entities and individuals that facilitate wrongdoing. 
thirdly, COVID-19 has brought to light new domestic concerns through large distributions of federal funds. These are risk care. Of course, to start the list off, government contractors who are in federal, state, and local arenas, public utilities, and public works. And what are the motives? First of all, to try and influence laws and regulations that impact revenue and profits. Here's a big one, to win government contracts and to obtain regular approval and permits. If you recall back in July of 2020, you might remember there was a king-size bribery scandal in Illinois and Iowa dominating the headlines that there was a vivid illustration of how, how utilities routinely exert financial and political power to shelve some of the risks of doing business, often at the expense of consumers. What penalties are being issued? There's, of course, fines, hundreds of millions of dollars. There's deferment from competing on further federal government bids. And then there's obligations to remediate and enhance deferred prosecution agreement. So how are individuals and entities facilitating these activities? Some of the usual schemes involve king, gifts to public officials, campaign contributions, charitable contributions, subcontractor and vendor contacts, specifically the provision of legal and tax advice, employment of friends and family, securities and stock compensation, and lobbying and political thing. So here's the internal question. What can companies do to, be, to help deter and prevent corruption? First, we need to increase C-suite policies, controls, and reviews of governmental interaction. We need to continually update and and evaluate internal controls. We need to support internal audit programs, government affairs, and government sales force practices. And we need to have valid and easy to use whistleblower programs. Bribery seems to be a habitual trap that snares politicians and those in power. But by looking at anti corruption tools for inspiration, domestic fraud fighters can inoculate their businesses and employees by using many of the same programs, policies, and procedures that global anti-corruption regulators use to combat FCPA issues. Tom? So, Jay, our listeners may recall that this scandal involving the Santa Clara County Sheriff was the one that embroiled or ensnared the former CCO at Apple, who was alleged to have uh, paid to play by making a donation to get concealed carry permits from the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office. And I guess what I would encourage our readers to remember that even if you have a best practices FCPA and a corruption compliance program, every state in the United States prevents bribery and corruption of state and local and municipal officials. You may not have a commercial bribery law in your state, but you do have laws which prevent bribery and corruption at the local level. With that, I think Mr. Armstrong. First of all, I want to shout out to Mr. Armstrong before we get to shout outs and rants, because he's the only person on this panel wearing a poppy today. Jonathan, before you give us some comments and your hot take on Twitter, could you tell us why on in 2022, you're wearing a poppy on this day? In, in the UK, I think the same as you, we celebrate Veterans Day on the 11th of November, and we have two-minute silence at 11 o'clock, which is gone, 11 o'clock my time. And we traditionally wear poppies, so that's to celebrate the 
battlefields of to commemorate the battlefields of Flanders. And then in recent years, the poppies were made by veterans. So you can get a plastic poppy that's made by veterans or you can have the metal equivalent. And we raise money for the British Legion, which goes to support veterans of all... It's a noble tradition. I'm glad you carry it on in the United Kingdom. I wish we more did so here in the United States. Shout out to Canada because they also wear poppies on November hmm. 11th. But I think you have a little live update for us. I do. Yeah, very live at the moment. So I'm just going to read it. Matt's, one of Matt's predictions has come true already about Twitter. So the Deputy Dead Protection Commissioner in Ireland, Graham, has just announced that they will investigate Twitter over the loss of senior privacy staff that were let go this week, it seems, in Ireland. This could be really consequential because without being too technical, the EU one-stop shop rules that currently designate Ireland as the lead regulator rely on all sorts of different things, including where privacy decisions are being taken. So if decisions relating to privacy and data protection are being taken now in the US because the Irish staff have been let go or have walked out, then that potentially means that Twitter fall out of the one-stop shop mechanism. They're currently under investigation, I understand, for a number of things. And there's currently the, the EDPB fine mechanism is engaged, looking at some fines that are due to Twitter. What this could potentially mean, it won't happen, but could potentially mean, is that instead of being fined once by Ireland, they're potentially fined by all of the EU authorities who each would have the power to fine Twitter 4% of annual revenue. Goes to your point, Matt, of you've got to think through the consequences when you're letting staff go. And this seems to be pretty significant. Apparently, the investigation is around a guy called da Damien Kieran, who was based in Ireland and was Twitter's CPO and dead protection officer, he apparently changed his own Twitter profile to ex-chief privacy officer at Twitter. And that apparently has been enough to cause the investigation to commence. So very much breaking news, but I think I'd give the Matt the glory of one of his predictions coming true within about 30 minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a fabulous episode, but... We're saving the best for last, as always, because we have shout outs and rants. And I'm going to assign myself position number six, as always. Mr. Armstrong has put on his 2017 <laughs> World Series hat only because I haven't sent him a 2022 World Series hat yet. <laughs> so we'll take the same order. And uh, Mr. Armstrong, do you have a shout out and or rant for us? I'm really spoiled for choice this week, I have to tell you. And I've been traveling a bit in the US. So I've been to the SCCE conference in Phoenix, to the great folks at Burr in Houston, and to Relativity Fest in Chicago. So thanks very much to all of the people who came up to me, particularly those, one of which stopped me and shouted at me in the street because they'd recognized my voice from our podcast. So it's great to have that live in-person feedback for those of you who listen to the podcast. So thanks for that. But I did get some time with you 
Tom in Houston. And as a result, I can think of no better shout out than Mac and Wings in Houston. Get a pen and paper, folks. Note down plus one seven one three four nine seven fifty three seventy. They, I wouldn't say dabble with fusion food, but it's mac and cheese based fusion food. I was fortunate enough to sign up for the the chicken tikka mac and cheese. Strange sort of fusion food with a sauce uh, hotter than anything known to man. I can only assume, given its proximity to NASA, it's some sort of space program spin-off that's usually used to drill through meteorites or something or to find black holes. But it certainly found a black hole in my digestive system, I can tell you that. Their slogan is, your mouth will thank you later. And on what planet that is true, I've no clue. For those of you who haven't got the chance to experience the culinary delights that they offer live, the great news is that they have a franchise program. So in just 300 days, you could be in possession of a greater than industrial strength chili sauce to make this stuff in your own outlet. All you've got to do is find a site, schlep up a few thousand dollars, and you will be able to make grown men cry in your own living room. One of those grown men who cried, I can certainly attest <laughs> to that. Matt Kelly, what do you have for us today? I have a shout out, although I just want to give one other final point about Twitter and Elon. Jonathan, you saying that all EU countries could impose fines of up to 4% of Twitter's annual revenue. Ah, but when you have no revenue, because you have chased away all your advertisers who think your yeah. business is now fit for a straitjacket, you have no but it, no, you do. It, it goes on to, there's a day minimum, so it's 20 million euros. So in this case, ballpark 30 regulators, because of course, some of the German can as well. So you, yeah, a mere 600 million euros. A mere pittance for the richest man in the world, at least for <laughs> now. No, I actually did want to give a shout out to everybody who voted in these elections. Thank you for staking this country back from the brink of total lunacy and autocracy or whatever it was that the Trumpy people would have wanted to foist on this country because that did not happen. But I even also want to thank all of the election denier crazies who, when they lost, which by and large they have, did not actually pitch a fit and they did not sue and they did not attempt a coup and they did not burn down any state capitals. The vast majority of them just took their loss and went away. So somewhat to my surprise, yet again, America has proven that when its back is against the wall, it can actually keep its act together. And we did this past week. So that's my shout out. Karen Woody. Thanks. Matt took the one I was going to do. I mean, like Jonathan, there were a lot of good options this week, but because of that, I actually am going to pivot it and give a rant to something that I think may have fallen under the radar given the results of Tuesday's election. And that is a rant against Putin, because that feels like an easiest target maybe of all. But 
In particular, for this week's revelation that our jailed American basketball star Brittany Grind revealed that she is currently on her way to a Russian penal colony to serve out her nine-year sentence for drug smuggling charges. Obviously, this is very high profile, but still, I think, is was one of the many pieces of news that flashed quickly across all of our screens. But I just want to have a rant about the concept of a penal colony at all and the fact that Russia is still doing this in the same spirit of the gulags they used to have. Everything about this story is horrendous and unjust and terrible and frankly immoral. So it is a rant against that system writ large. Jonathan Marks. Yeah, and also late breaking news, Joe Sullivan also filed a lawsuit this morning because his driver rating went from 4.93 to 3.1. So I don't know if you all saw that. (laughs) But, uh, you yeah, know, a little bit of a shout-out. Shout-out to the Houston Astros. Played great baseball. It was fun to watch that series, even though it was dubbed as one of the lowest-watched series in, a, in, I guess, modern times. But, you know, what a, what a, what a really great, great way to end the fall with watching, watching two teams slug it out. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. Tom and I were texting back and forth, so congratulations to the Houston Astros. You only cheated once this time, which is a miracle, so... I'm sure more will come out later, but you just never know. So just a shout out to the Astros. And my rant is, I'm going to go back to a rant that I had from before, because in my week of craziness this week, I used this app called DoorDash in order to order food again. And I made the grave mistake of ordering from Chipotle. And like I told you from before, when my meal came, I, I couldn't even find my meal. And at 255 pounds, I was like a bear in my own house. So I don't know who controls what's going on over there, but it seems like it's a freaking mess. Jay Rosen. Thanks, guys. Kanye West in popular culture to Kyrie Irving in sports culture. There's unfortunately been some strong anti-Semitic messages that have been thrust upon many Americans. And this shout-out goes to Julian Edelman, former New England Patriot and current commentator on Inside the NFL. You may recall Edelman famously reached out as an ally to Deshaun Jackson in 2020 after Jackson shared on social media a quote that had been incorrectly attributed to Hitler. Edelman offered to visit the U.S. Holocaust Museum with Jackson while also suggesting that they have some uncomfortable conversations. Edelman believes that like most matters, this can be solved through love, not hate. Love is answer to a lot of things Edelman said. As athletes, as media people, as some of the greats that they've been around, why were they great? They were great because of love for what they were doing. And they also had a lot of people in their lives. Love is a huge answer to a lot of things. Love, empathy, and there's a lot of people's world that can bring it back other words, love. So pretty deep stuff from a football player, but this is my uh, for the week. My shout out goes to Brenda Hughes. Brenda Hughes is a city council person in Kerrville, Texas. And Brenda Hughes left the panel she was sitting on in city council to go behind the speaker's platform this week in a city council meeting where she delivered a blistering speech about a controversy in our local library where certain people want to ban books from Banned Books Week. Hughes pushed back against what she said was a hypocritical approach to those saying the library staff was fostering or foisting rather sexualized book on children, which contains topics about sex, bestiality, and rape. 
She pointed out that numerous books in the library have those topics and they are not trying to be banned. <clears throat> she ended by bringing up a book we're all familiar with. It's called The Bible, at which time she gave 15 different citations, scripture and verse, to those topics of sex, bestiality, and rape that were in the Bible. And she said, no one's asked for the Bible to be banned from our local library. Her entire point was that the library is full of books that some people could consider questionable, but that her zinger was the only books that these idiots wanted to ban were books that were centered around LGBTQ plus issues. One about sex. It was about something very different. Now, Brenda Hughes is a Donald Trump supporter and in many ways a proud Donald Trump supporter. But she spoke her mind and espoused her values, essentially saying, don't tell me what to read and I won't tell you what to read. So I want to give a shout out to Brenda Hughes. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been a great episode. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope the gang gets together a little more often and everybody have a happy Thanksgiving. Take Carol. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to the award-winning Everything Compliance. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Everything Compliance. We're going to return the first week in September with the full game back for our fall season. I know you'll enjoy it. I hope you'll check out the next episode of Everything Compliance, which should premiere the first week in September. If you haven't listened to uh, several of the new special podcasts out on the Compliance Podcast Network, I'd ask you to take a listen under the Greetings and Felicitations podcast. I have two really fun week-long series. The first one was the 100th anniversary of Ulysses, and the second was the intersection of compliance and winning. So check out one or both of those podcasts if you want to maybe think about taking your program in a different direction through storytelling. Also, check out the podcast on how the world has changed forever after the Russian invasion podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.